Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, in the old days, in the biblical days, like in the days of Nehemiah, the people stood during the entire message that was preached. And so, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Just wanted to get you there. But um, it was then, and even in many traditional churches, the rising to hear the Word of God read shows the respect that we believe in with the Word, God's truth. So um, grab your Bible as you stand, and we're going to read our text today, and then you can have a seat afterwards. John chapter 14 Beginning in the 19th verse, I'll read it to you as you remain standing. Jesus speaking. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Let's pray. Father, As we stand in your presence before you as your people, having read what we believe and know to be the word of life, the words of the living God, preserved, illuminated, accurate and inerrant because of the work of your Holy Spirit and reliable for us. As you have blessed the reading, now the listening of your word, we pray. And we pray, Lord, that we would leave this place filled with the promises that we can then cash in on and make our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. We live our lives by promises. When you buy a car, the manufacturer makes you a promise. They give you a warranty, it's called, that that car is reliable up to so many miles or so many years, and if anything happens, bring it back and we'll replace it for free. That is, unless it's tires or brakes or engine or transmission or just about anything that really matters, but they give you a promise. Uh, You then make a promise to the bank to make monthly installments to pay that car off. It's a promise you make. You sign your promise, you sign on the line. 
When couples get married, they make a promise to each other, public vows, for better, for worse, richer, for poor, sickness and in health, love and to cherish, till death do us part. That's a promise. I feel as a pastor, I make a promise to you that every week, if you're going to make an effort to get out of your bed and put clothes on and get in your car and drive all the way here, that I make the promise to you that I'm going to study hard and pray hard and hear from God and, and we'll come together and meet on that basis. But promises can sometimes be broken, and when they are, disappointment always follows. Some people are big on over-promising but under-delivering. I'll give you an example. The diet industry. Um, You have heard, you've seen ads... Uh, on how to lose weight, and Americans are are big on that. We spend billions and billions of dollars on it. And the advertisers know that, and so they will make you promises that if you get their diet, this will happen to you. Listen to some of the promises. Here's one. Eat as much as you want and still lose weight. That's a promise. Is it true or false? Absolutely false, but they make it. Here's another one. Lose 8 to 10 pounds every week easily. Really? That's a, that's a huge promise. Now, because of these outlandish promises, the Federal Trade Commission decided to examine 300 diet advertisements and 218 diet supplements. And in their research, they said, I'll just give you one line of it, of these ads make at least one claim that was very likely false or lacked adequate substantiation. Translated, they lied. And so the Surgeon General weighed in and said, quote, There is no miracle pill that will lead to weight loss. Close quote. A promise is only as good as the person... Who makes the promise? If a person is reliable, the promise is too. If the person is unreliable, so is the promise. Now, God makes promises in this book, the Bible. Lots of them. Within the pages of the Bible that you brought to church this morning, between the two covers, the Old and the New Testament, there are 31,173 verses of Scripture. And a lot of those verses are filled with promises. How many? Well, Time Magazine years ago featured a man from Kirchner, Canada, named Everett Storms, who read through the Bible 26 times, and on the 27th time through, took him a year and a half, he cataloged all of the promises in the Bible. And he discovered, and this was printed in Time Magazine, Not that that matters. That there are 7,487 promises that God made to man. 7,487. That'll get you through anything if you live by them. The promises of God. Joshua in the Old Testament said to the people of Israel... Deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord has come true. Not a single one has failed. And then Peter in the New Testament calls them exceedingly great and precious promises. 
But here's my question. What do you do with the promises of God? Someone might say, I underline them. Okay, cool. What else? Someone will say, I memorize them. If you're a teacher, you might say, I exegete them. But the, uh, the highest and best answer is, man, I live by them. I make them my daily sustenance. Years ago, when America was being settled and a traveler was trying to get across a river, there were no bridges then. It was early winter and the, the water in the river had frozen. It was ice on the river. But he wasn't sure how deep it was, if it would sustain his weight. So he got on all fours and started creeping across slowly this river on the ice, displacing the weight evenly, he hoped, on two hands and two knees. As he was in the middle of this river, he heard singing behind him and he turned around to see horses drawing a huge load of coal and a driver sitting, whistling, singing his way across the ice-covered river. Now he felt pretty stupid because he knew if it can sustain that weight, I can surely stand up. They're singing over this river. I'm creeping over this river. There's an old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God Our Savior. Remember that hymn? Some of you do. Standing on the promises of God. Are you standing on the promises? Or are you creeping on the promises of God? Some people could even say that. They'd have to sing sitting on the premises rather than standing on the promises. In this section of the upper room discourse that we've been studying, our Lord Jesus gave His disciples many promises. He promised to prepare a place for them when He returns. He promised that they would do greater works than even He had done. He promised that He would dispatch the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit who would be their comforter, counselor, helper. Now, because He knows what they're going to face, He gives them four more promises. And we're going to look at these promises this morning. The first one is in verse 19, the promise of a supernatural life. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. This is what it means. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be killed. He'll be crucified. The unbelieving world will never see him again. Jesus will rise from the dead, and he will not appear to the world anymore. He will appear to only his disciples. And when he appears to his disciples, and they see the guy who died now alive... That is going to be visible proof to them that just as He has resurrected, they too will one day be resurrected. Because I live, you will live too. But I believe it's more than that. I don't think Jesus is just making a promise that one day in the sweet by and by, thousands of years from now, eventually, after you die and wait a long time, you'll be raised. I think what he is speaking about primarily is you're going to see me alive. And that's when you're really going to come alive. You're going to experience a whole new level of life that you've never experienced before because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, do you think there's a difference between existing and living? 
Think about those two for a minute. Existence and life. I think you know what I'm getting at. Some people just exist, but they're not really living. They have a job. They work. They put money on the table. They go to bed at night and sleep, get up. Routine starts all over again. In the process, they make a few friends. They buy a few nice things. They call that life, but that's just existence. Then there's life. Really living. One psychologist, Harvard trained by the name of William Marston, asked 3,000 people a very important question. A very simple question. The question was this, what do you have to live for? He was shocked that 94% of the people he asked that question to, 94%, said that they were simply enduring the present while waiting for the future. Their answers range from, I'm waiting for next year, I'm waiting for a better time, I'm waiting for a change, I'm waiting for somebody to die. I don't know who. (laughs) Apart from Christ, you can have physical life, but you're really dead man walking. That's what you are, dead man walking. Here's another dead man. Every day you encounter dead people. You go to the bank. Dead people, gas station, there's dead people filling up their cars, go to the store, dead people buying groceries. You drive around the roads, I see a lot of dead people behind wheels of cars driving. (laughs) The Bible says this, And you has He made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. My mind always goes to this movie. You remember Princess Bride? Classic. One of the best movies ever made. The hero of that movie was named Wes. They thought Wes was dead in the movie, and they brought Wes to Miracle Max. Miracle Max was played by Billy Crystal, if you remember the film. And so this is Miracle Max, you've got to do something for our friend. He's dead. And Miracle Max goes, oh, you know so much. Well, I'll have you know, he's only mostly dead. Well, the Bible says that when you are born into this world, you are all dead. Spiritually speaking, you might have physical life, but you are separated from the life that we could have. And I think he promises that to his disciples. I want to recap on something that I said many, 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 many months ago when we first started this series. The very first study, I I remarked that in the Gospels, in the Bible that there's three different words the Bible uses for our English word life. And I don't like to dangle words in front of people because we typically don't remember them. But this is important. The first word that the Bible uses to describe your life is the Greek word bios, B-I-O-S, or bios. We get the term biology from it. It means physical, the now life, the physical life, all outward, all physical, all here and now. It's where most people spend most of their time and most of their energy. Jesus said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of this life. That's biological life. Years ago, a poll was taken to ask Americans, if you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? Almost no one said my character or my personality. Almost everyone said my outward appearance. 
age, body type, weight, etc. That's bios, biological life. Another word the Bible uses to describe life is the Greek word psuche. Psuche. Our term psyche or psychology comes from that. It's the inward life, the thought processes. Whoever wants to save his life must surrender it. So you can have physical life and an active psychological life, but still be, according to the Bible, mostly dead. To be really alive, it takes a third type that the Bible speaks about. Not bias, not suke, but the term zoe. Translated life, zoe. It's a term that shifts the focus from the earth to eternity. It's used 143 times in the Bible, and it doesn't just speak about an ongoing life forever and ever. Everybody, everybody, everybody has that kind of life. Every single person will live forever and ever. Depends where. The Bible uses that term zoe to speak more of a quality of life that goes on. A quality of life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it what? More abundantly. To the max. To the brim. How many people do you know that really live their lives that way? To the brim. In abundance because of the Lord. That's the first promise. Promise of a supernatural life. Because I live, you will also live. Here's the second promise. Promise of supernatural knowledge. Verse 20. At that day, you will know, that's the promise, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's a little hard to unravel. Admit it. Every time we read statements like that, we go, what does that mean? When he says, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you, it sounds like that old Beatles song. I am he, as you are me, as you are we, and we are all together. Remember that? What Jesus is telling his disciples, and they're worried, his worried disciples, is that his death is not going to end their relationship. That the union they have is indissoluble. It's permanent. And they're going to know that. They don't know it now. They're confused now. But they will know it. There will be a supernatural knowledge. And the, the word here for knowledge doesn't mean textbook, I read it somewhere knowledge. It means I know it, I understand it, because I've experienced it knowledge. That's what it means. So if I could put it together for you so far. After the resurrection, when you're really alive, you're going to know by your own experience and apprehension just how close we are. Understand something that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brought sort of a, a, a sudden realization to the disciples of who Jesus Christ really was. They were wondering up to this point. When he gets up from the dead, they're they're going to understand it. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever wondered what it was like to hang out with Jesus for three and a half years up close? And all the while you're going, now who is this guy? They asked that question. Who is this guy? When he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they said, who is this man? They were in a process of discovery. But then after it's all said and done, it's all over, and he dies and then gets raised from the dead and and goes into heaven, then to suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I was hanging out with God. Right? What that would be like to have that dawn on you. 
It's exactly what happens to the author of the book you are reading, the Gospel of John. The author, John, listen to how he begins another book he writes, 1 John chapter 1. He writes, the one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. I've been hanging out with God. The one from the very beginning of time is the one we have heard and seen. He goes on. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ, the word of life. When Jesus rose from the dead, it proved that everything he had said about himself was true. You know, it's one, it's one thing to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody could say that. I could say that. You could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's quite another thing for somebody who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, to die, and then three days later, get back up. Now what he said is all important. And credence is put to it. Because he validates his claim by his deeds. So the resurrection is what separates the men from the boys, the big leagues from the minor leagues. Jesus from Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey. You can say great things. Jesus said what he said and rose again from the dead. There's a promise of a supernatural knowledge. And the disciples would get that knowledge. Jesus said when they would on that day. I think that's the day of Pentecost in particular. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Here's the principle. It's only when God puts his supernatural life within us that we really get it. Our spiritual eyes are open. They can't be any other way. We can't apprehend or know certain things unless God does a supernatural work within our lives. And the disciples, they came alive with boldness and power because of this knowledge. Thomas, after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to him, It's like he instantly got it. First he goes, well, I don't believe and I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in his side and his hands. And then Jesus just stood there. And Thomas got it. He goes, my Lord and my God. If you've ever seen the Peanuts cartoons in newspapers, they were published for many years. I read once um, a Peanuts cartoon and, you know, it had four little cubes, four little sections to it. In the first section, the first cube, it shows Lucy and Linus talking. They're, they're both looking out a window and it's raining outside. And Lucy says to Linus, it's pouring. I hope the whole world doesn't flood. In the next frame, Linus says, don't worry, it won't. It'll never happen. In Genesis 9, God told Noah it would never happen again. And the rainbow is the sign of that promise. In the third frame, it shows Lucy again looking out the window with a big smile on her face, and she says, You've taken a great load off my mind, Linus. And in the fourth frame, Linus says with a smile, Sound theology has a way of doing that. You and I are able to read God's Word and have Him confirm things to our hearts and This understanding that he gives brings a sense of security to us. Something the the most brilliant, trained minds in the world can never know. 
unless they experience it. Supernatural knowledge. That's the second promise. Here's the third. The promise of a supernatural presence. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Very important word, because notice the next question. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And notice this. We will come to him and make our home with him. Talk about the promise of, of presence, supernatural presence of God. We're going to come inside that person, kick off our sandals, and be at home. That's our new home. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Okay, look at the word manifest again. Used twice. Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself. Judas says, okay, let's talk about the manifest thing. How come you're not doing it to the world and just to us? The word manifest means to show, to exhibit, to disclose, or to appear. Once the Lord does His work in our lives and gives us newness of life, and now we get it, we have this spiritual, supernatural knowledge of, yes, this really is true, I get it now. Then what happens is a deepening process where we want to experience the presence of God more and more and more. It's like that when you dated your spouse. Some of you have to think back a long ways for this, but remember when you dated your spouse, you wanted to be with that person all the time, all the time. Never wanted to call it quits for the night. You wanted to be together all the time. A phone call wasn't enough. A text message, if it's a modern dating situation, is not enough. You want presence. You want presence. That's the promise here. Once you taste the presence of God, nothing else satisfies. Nothing. When I was in college, I survived on really two things. Peanut butter. Skippy, peanut butter. And uh, number two... Hamburger Helper. Now, with Hamburger Helper, it was perfect for me because I could cook a batch of it and just I'd leave it on my stove for the rest of the week and I'd, I'd have meals. I know it. Then one day, somebody who had a lot more income than I had and was very generous took me out to a steak and lobster dinner, the combination. Now, one of the steak and lobster. Oh, my stars. The the taste, I didn't know anything tasted like that on earth. Now, after I tasted that, it was really hard for me to go back to Hamburger Helper. I was spoiled. I was ruined. Once you taste what it is to have God manifest himself to you, you experience his presence. You want more and more and more of it. Now, Jesus promises His presence. I'll manifest. We'll come in. It'll, that person will be our home. Judas, not Iscariot. He's called Judas, the son of James in the Gospel of Luke. Judas says, okay, hey, now that you're speaking about the manifest deal, how come you're just manifesting yourselves to us disciples? There's a whole world out there. You know why you ask that question? Because 
All of the disciples were thinking about one thing, the earthly, immediate, messianic kingdom. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do. So they're wondering about that. Okay, you're the king of the world. You're the Messiah of the world. How come you're just like behind closed doors manifesting yourself to us? Why don't you do it for the whole world? Now Jesus answers the question and he gives with the answer the condition for anyone to experience God's presence. It's the clincher. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, this is the third time, if you're counting in this section, the third time that we have read that Jesus brings in the condition for certain promises to be fulfilled. And it's the condition of our obedience to him, our obedience to him. What Jesus is saying here. Verse 23 and also verse 21. He's saying, I will not reveal myself to those who refuse to love me and obey me. I refuse to reveal myself or disclose myself to those who refuse to love me and obey me. Show their love by obedience. Very, very important truth. You will never enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. You'll never enjoy the presence of God unless... You are cooperating with God by a lifestyle that's conforming to Him, obedient to Him. You know, I believe it's possible to be saved but not satisfied. To have salvation, just not to enjoy salvation. It's like you start to grow and then you hit that snag where you stop obeying, you stop conforming and... Yeah, you've given your life to Christ, but just you're just enduring the present while looking toward the future. You've come to that place. Arthur W. Pink put it this way. This manifestation of Jesus Christ is made only to the ones who really love him. And the proof of love to him is not emotional display, but submission to his will. The Lord will give no direct and special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. I've known so many believers who live sub-relational lives with Christ because of this exact issue. That's the condition. You want to experience the fullness of my presence? Then if you say you love me, do what I say. Obedience. Three tremendous promises, and now there's a fourth. It's the promise of supernatural revelation. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, hasn't Christ already promised the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, he has, but he promised that he would be another helper, another counselor, another comforter. Now, he says he's going to be a teacher. A reminder. Question. You answer it. Up to this point, who has been the disciples' teacher? Jesus. He says so. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. So he's been the teacher. They've been the pupils. How did they do in class? Now, overall, the last three and a half years, would you give them an A? Would you give them a C? I know it's subjective. Would you give them an F? Well, let's see. Let's just take a few classroom episodes, shall we? It's the time when Jesus said to his disciples, Boys, I want to let you know what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. 
they're going to kill me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Peter answered, no, it's not going to happen to you, Lord. We're going to prevent that from happening. What, what grade would you give him on that? F. I give him not a C or a D, an F. You know, well, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. That's an F. Another classroom episode, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transformed, illuminated with Moses and Elijah. It's a wonderful moment. They're speaking to each other. God is speaking. And then Peter comes up and says really profoundly, Hey, you guys, it's really good to be here. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Needed that. I'd at least give him a seat just for the interruption. Here's another time. Uh, Jesus announced that he's going to Judea. The disciples say, boy, they're trying to kill you in Judea. I don't know if we should go. Thomas says, let's go with him that we can die too. (laughs) Always nice to have an optimist in the crowd, right? I'd give him at least a D, if not an F for that. Then there's a time when um, two of his disciples, James and John, asked Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and kill all those people? Just smoke them right now? F. These are Jesus' students. They're in the remedial class. It's special ed for these guys. Now, did they ever learn? Did they ever graduate? Oh, yes, they did. Peter, who got an F, gets an A on the day of Pentecost. Now it makes sense to him. He who said... Far be it from you, Lord, we'll never let you go to the cross. Now on the day of Pentecost, to all of the crowds in Jerusalem, says these words, Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. What a statement. He gets an A. Went from an F to an A. Now you've had this experience where you have read through the Bible and you read a text, you go, I don't quite get that. Then one day you're reading and you go, Wow, it dawns on you what that means. There's this revelation that takes place. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, the promise in 25 and 26, real real quickly, answers a very fundamental question that you and I and a lot of people have. How is it possible that 12 uneducated, for the most part, fishermen were able to remember in detail three and a half years' worth of activities and profound truths and record it without getting messed up. I mean, I can't remember what I preached a month ago, two months ago, a year. I mean, people say, you remember two years ago when you were... No. How did they remember in detail the things that they recorded? That is the promise, the teacher, the reminder, the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit is going to bring these things to your remembrance. So tremendous, tremendous promises that he gives us. Now, there's four promises I gave you. I want to give you four takeaway points. Here's four applicational points for you based upon these four things that we just gave. These are things for you to do, to remember, to ask yourself. Question number one. Ask this, how's my life? How's my life? Am I existing? Am I living? 
And if I'm just existing, why is it that I'm just existing? And how can I be raised based upon this promise to that level of life? Question number two. How's your knowledge? I don't mean how much theology do you know? I mean, are you experiencing what you know? Are you experiencing the knowledge you know? Question number three, how's your intimacy with Jesus Christ? He said he's going to come in and make himself at home and he's going to bring the Father and the Holy Spirit. Do you live in such a way as to make him comfortable wherever you take him? In situations that you take him in? Would you ever be in a situation or in an activity where they would feel uncomfortable to be there and hear that and watch that? How's the intimacy going? Fourth and finally, how's my relationship to the Holy Spirit? Is He instructing me and teaching me? Am I learning from Him myself as He's living in me? Or do I always need my favorite Bible teacher on the radio to tell me what that means because I'll never know otherwise? Is He teaching you and nurturing you? Ann Landers had been in newspapers around the country for years with her column. She's still published. She got a letter from a girl who was writing about her aunt and uncle. I want you to hear the letter. Dear Ann Landers, my uncle was the tightest man I've ever known. All his life, every time he got paid, he took cash out of his paycheck and put it under his mattress. Then he got sick and was about to die. As he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. What? She asked. I want you to promise me that when I'm dead, you'll take all my money from the mattress, put it in my casket so that I can take it all with me. Well, he died and his wife kept her promise. She went in, got all the money that day he died and went to the bank and deposited it and wrote out a check (laughs) and put the check in the casket. Awesome. Dude, if you can cash it, it's yours. That little funny story brings up a very important point. Just like a dead person can't cash a check, a spiritually dead person can't cash in on all these promises. It takes life. Jesus said you must be born again. And when you are alive, like he promises here, really living by his spirit working inside of you, all of his promises are either going to lay there and you're going to look at them and read them and underline them and exegete them and study them, or you're going to cash them and they're going to be yours. And you'll go from intimacy to intimacy, glory to glory. And Father, that's what we want. We want it because Jesus said we could have it. He promised it. He promised it to his men. They thought it was all over. They thought if Jesus is going to die, then we're going to die. And yet Jesus says, you're going to live like you've never lived before. To his disciples who were confused with so many questions, thinking if I'm confused now, when he's dead, I'm going to really be confused. Jesus said, you're going to know. You're going to know all about what I'm talking about. To the disciples who were worried because Jesus was leaving their side, Jesus said he would live inside them. 
And to these men who had already forgotten so much is the promise that the Holy Spirit would be their reminder and teacher. And so we thank you for his ministry to us and we pray that we might grow as your children in grace. For those, Lord, who um, aren't even mostly dead, they're just spiritually incapable of understanding. They need to be born again. I pray, Father, that you would do that work in their lives today. Graciously receive them as sons or daughter, new in the faith, awaken within them spiritual life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.